and welcome to Crypto Facto with Josh and Jonathan. I'm Josh Clayman. And I'm Jonathan Ching. And we're from the global law firm of Linklaters. On this podcast, you'll hear our hot takes on some of the hottest topics affecting the digital assets and tech spaces. Of course, these are our personal views only, and nothing we say here today is legal advice, investment advice, or any other kind of advice. But we do think it's interesting. So hold on tight and let's get to it. So we're back, and a lot has happened since the last time we met here on Crypto Facto. One of the things that we can kick off with, um, just for our, our hot takes this week, you may have seen that on March 12th at 6.44 p.m., Meltem Demirers tweeted, quote, and just like that, crypto in America has been unbanked. Silvergate, Silicon Valley Bank, signature in one week. Jonathan, what do you think? Well, I think it's, you know, stunning, I guess is the word that I, I would use. And I, I mean, the banks that are involved, you know, they weren't just crypto banks. I guess that's the first thing I'd get out there. You know, the Signature Bank is one of the largest low-income lenders to real estate in New York City. And actually, that's how I was familiar with them. My wife works in real estate. Signature was in a lot of her deals. Silicon Valley Bank was, you know, a very active lender to venture capital, to all sorts of different, you know, startup businesses, to a lot of private equity funds, some of whom are our clients. Uh, you know, so they were not just crypto. And, and then, of course, Silvergate, you know, is, is small San Diego and smallest of the three, but of course was doing lots of other things, you know, again, in the real estate market and in other parts of the world. So, you know, I can't uh, help but think this is not a positive development for, for, you know, the American banking system. Absolutely. I think people are waking up perhaps uh, for the first time and coming to understand what fractional fractionalized banking is, right? Fractional, fractional reserves, excuse me. I mean, I, I think a lot of people, they think that when they put their money into a bank, that it's just sitting there waiting for them. And by a lot of people, I really mean people, you know, just everyday people on the street, but Actually, I mean, I think as we've seen from some of the, the reactions that have been reported in the media, it's not just, you know, regular people on the street. It's, it's sophisticated businesses who also, um, at least at some level, think that their deposits will be available whenever they want to withdraw it. And of course, I mean, one of the other themes that was emerging, at least over the weekend in some quarters, and, and I think the most interesting quote I saw on this was, of course, from Barney Frank who sat on the board of Signature and, of course, is the co-author of Dodd-Frank, you know, all the regulations that were basically enacted in the following the financial crisis. Um, you know, Bar Barney Frank said, you know, and I'm paraphrasing here, but the quote that I read was, you know, sometimes you have to let one die. And it refers to, you know, an old uh, a, a quote from Candide, I think is actually what it means, is basically saying that sometimes it's a good example to let certain institutions fail in order to teach a lesson to the others. And so there was a theme that was, you know, going around Twitter and, and some quarters that basically were saying, well, were these banks effectively being put into receivership or wound down or, you know, whatever, because of their involvement with the crypto market? And so it's a question I think worth, worth considering, I guess, in the current political environment. It's a great question, because while you're absolutely right, there were tons of other depositors, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, as you noted, Silicon Valley Bank, who did it serve? Silicon Valley, that's not just crypto. Crypto is just a small percentage. Um, and certainly, you know, 
just like your wife. I mean, I've previously been involved in in a prior life in financings as well that had literally nothing to do with with crypto. Um, but but I do think there are a lot of there are a lot of I don't want to say rumors, but just different um, ideas floating around. And we'll never know what would have happened had those had Silver and not Silvergate had um, Signature and um, SVB not been quote rescued this weekend, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of of talk about what would have happened. I mean, one of the big questions out there. Well, actually, I mean, just stepping back for a second, if you were in Twitter spaces, if you listened to some of the Twitter spaces this weekend, I mean, people were very vocal, um, many of them VCs, saying things like, oh, people are going to be lined up around the block, standing in line to, you know, to take their deposits out of banks, right? And you had to wonder, at least I wondered, and I, I think a lot of others wondered as well, probably you too, Jonathan, <laughs> why are they saying this? Like, why are we sometimes, at some points, it made me wonder, like, why are people, in essence, seeming to be shouting fire in a you know, crowded theater, so to speak? I mean, and the thing is, we'll never know, right? It may just have been, like, there have been, there's been speculation that the, um, that the regulators stepped in in the case of Signature, um, you know, just... Because, as you noted, you know, there's this association, for example, with with crypto. But at the same time, if they hadn't stepped in, we don't know. Maybe people would have withdrawn their money um, en masse from Signature on Monday morning. So it's one of those things that we don't know the answer to, but some have been pointing um, to the VCs as, as saying, why were they doing this? Well, some people believe it's because they wanted to get their money you know, beyond the FDIC limits. Because I mean, 250,000, it may be a lot in terms of a deposit for the average person, but for for large businesses um, or even, you know, startups as well, that's not a lot relative to how much was in the accounts. Well, I mean, so you know, it's a great, it, well, it's a great point. And I think, you know, the one figure that caught my eye over the weekend, which we could talk about, I'm sure you have views, is the 3.3 billion that Circle had at Selby uh -huh. Bank. And we could talk about the stable coins and the depegging, but I guess I wanna make one point first, which is you know, the difference you know, that was reported in a lot of the financial press between you know, a Silicon Valley bank and a Bank of America say, is the concentration of you know, ownership of, of long-term debt. And so I think the, the simple kind of model that they use to describe what went wrong with SVB and, and some of the others is, well, they highly, you know, in a low interest rate environment, they bought a lot of bonds, treasury bonds, mm -hmm. what have you, and that formed so much of their asset base that when you combine that with a very sort of flighty depositor base, so people started asking for their money back and the deposits weren't as sticky at the bank as they might be in a B of A or a JP Morgan, you have to sell bonds into a down market because, of course, as interest rates went up, the price of those bonds went down. Yep. Lower price bonds, you're selling into a bad market, you're going to create a, you know, obviously a negative feedback loop on the bond pricing, and you're going to run out of cash to meet those depositors' requests because you just don't, don't have as many assets as, as the big, huge 
you know, global banks do. So that all sort of tracks and makes sense to me. But I guess what the, the the more interesting phenomenon is probably the psychological phenomenon, which is the thing that we saw on Twitter and other places, which is everyone panicking to get their money out of there, share prices crashing, et cetera, et cetera, into, you know, basically the point where I think the FDIC took a pretty unusual step of stepping in during the middle of the day on Friday rather than waiting till the end of the day, which is the traditional pattern, you know, till after the markets are closed at 5 p.m. to put the bank into receivership. They actually had to come in at midday at 9 a.m. Pacific time and take over. And that left everybody kind of wondering, well, okay, what's, you know, A, what's happening with SVB, but B, what's happening next with the other banks with the next to go. And we saw this phenomenon a little bit in 2008. So, you know, if you're worried about Bayer, then you're worried about Lehman, you should be worried about Morgan Stanley and Goldman, so on and so forth, of the size chain. In this case, it's all those kind of mid-cap banks. And so some of the press was reporting, well, this is a problem because actually the Trump administration rolled back the supervisory stress testing requirement. You know, it was set at banks with 50 billion of assets, would have, which would have captured all three banks that failed. But that limit was raised to 250 billion, uh, you know, during the Trump administration. And therefore, those banks weren't subject to mandatory stress testing. Now, I'm not a bank reg expert. I don't know if that's you know really a factor in all of this, but it was something people were pointing to to say, Actually, people like you know Barney Frank helped to repeal that limit to raise that threshold, and therefore, you know, we missed out. We missed out on an opportunity to really test these guys and see what they were up to. But you know, the contra argument from some, some sides of the house is actually, you know, when the Fed raises interest rates this aggressively, it's not surprising that there's some fallout, and this is one of those, um, you know, known unknowns, I guess, that happened uh, because. The massive increase in rates causes so much pressure on those bank balance sheets that causes negative effects for these depositors, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're left with three bank failures in the space of a week, including, you know, one of the top 20 largest. So it was really unprecedented. Exactly. And I mean, I think that's one thing, you know, that unless you really look through press reports, it's getting ignored a lot is Jerome Powell's statement last week you know, that there would continue to be aggressive rate hikes, right? We were expecting a 50 basis point rate hike as of last week. That, you know, could have been, as you noted, like a big contributor to some of the some of the events of last week. And now look, we're hearing reports um, to be to be determined, right? But where people are talking more about maybe 25 basis points or maybe no rate hikes at all. Yeah, I so think, I, it's kind I think of, it's why I reported that Goldman said now rate hikes are off the table, so we're, we're going to stay flat. I don't know if I believe that, but it certainly does seem like we're not as aggressive. You know, the Fed is not in a position to be as aggressive as it before. Yeah, and I mean, that it, it really makes me think as well, or it may make something that kind of all of the carrying on of this week, and I don't mean to make light of it, because clearly people need to make payroll. These are real issues, right? Um, but but that it it did, I mean, in arguably Silicon Valley did win out. And while the government is saying that that um, taxpayers won't be responsible for this this backstop of the banks, you know, it remains to be seen whether we may see increases in fees and things like that. I mean, some things it's funny that have been, you know, talked about. On, on Twitter and, and other places is this idea, well, why can't we just put money into a bank and pay a fee to the bank to hold the assets? 
for us. So we know that they're there. I mean, I think people are really going to need to realize that if they're earning a yield on their deposits, and especially if it's a meaningful yield, those deposits are unlikely to be there, yeah. right? At least not all of them. So I, I think that's that's very important. One may argue that this could be crypto's time to shine. I mean, this the whole fractional reserve banking, that's exactly you know, one of the reasons for which Bitcoin, for example, was was designed. And if you look back, I mean, going back years into Caitlin Long's tweets, she has been long warning about, about um, fractional reserve banking. And so, I mean, it, it's interesting that some are, are, quote, blaming crypto when really some of these challenges, they actually arguably are very different <laughs> from, you know, they're things that crypto was designed to to help with or to um, to make better or prevent. So, I mean, what I would say also, though, and just kind of going into a slightly different direction, is a lot of this, I mean, okay, a few different things. And I'll break this up because I don't want to, you know, obviously just say too much in a row. Although there's a lot I want to say. One of the big themes as well is, are we privatizing wins and socializing losses? And I think that's an important question here in general. Another thing is, is a question of, in keeping the, the digital assets out of the big banks, if, if what we have done is unbank crypto in a sense, by you know having now the three banks most associated with with digital assets no longer, um, you know, no longer being up and running in, in their prior forms, at least. Um, you know, is this a pattern that we've been seeing? Is this, is this, as you noted, political? So if we think back to what other regulators have been doing lately, I mean, we saw the OCC, for example, when it was under Brian Brooks's um, leadership, my understanding of his view was that issuers of stable coins should be able to become banks, generally speaking, right? Um, and we had the OCC charter introduced, FinTech charter. And then under Michael Sue, um, I think we've seen a different approach, which was more akin to you needed to be a bank to issue a stable coin, essentially. But, you know, Michael Sue has warned about um you know, the financial crisis repeating itself or Tether, you know, commercial paper largely backing Tether as opposed to fully liquid assets and things like that. And then we've seen where the OCC needs to provide approval of, of national banks to engage in crypto activities. So when we saw SoFi acquire a national bank, a condition of the OCC's approval was that SoFi stopped doing crypto activities. Similarly, we've seen this proposed rule that we talked about last time um, with the SEC's proposed safekeeping rule, right? You would think that having the need for a qualified custodian for all kinds of customer assets, including crypto, that this would lead a path for the banks, right? But then we have the, the rule from the Federal Reserve with a presumptive prohibition on member banks, you know, holding certain crypto assets. So it really, there really does seem to be a separation that's growing. And, you know, some people have predicted that this is really paving the way 
for a sort of elegant entree of the CBDC. Do you have a view on that? Well, well, that was, Sorry. <laughs> that, there was a lot in that, but l let me just say, you know, I understand. Would you have a view on any of those? Well, yeah, um, I, I mean, I My do. Hamlet moment or something, or Macbeth yeah. or something. <laughs> Friends, Roman countrymen. Um, but yeah, Sorry. I totally get what you're saying. No, it, you're right. And I mean, this is the kind of stuff, it, you know, I mean, there's just probably two or three things in there that I would say. Um, one is, you know, I don't know if the US is gonna be the place to get to central bank digital currency first or even you know, top 10. Like I feel like there's so much more momentum in Europe and parts of Asia for that. I think you know, the UK is really taking this seriously now. I think countries in Europe are pretty much you know, doing, a, doing something that's almost equivalent. Like you look at countries like Sweden, for example, they could implement this much easier than we could. Uh, Brazil was another one where there's a lot of digital payment activity going on right now that's basically state-sponsored. But, um, you know, drawing all the threads together, I mean, I do think that the regulators are boxing in, you know, firms that wanted to operate, you know, within the perimeter, right, that we always talk about, right, Josh, the, the regulatory perimeter. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you have to be a bank, but you can't register as a bank. You know, you have to register your token, but you can't register your token. You have to, you know, you have to do all of these different things. You have to get all these licenses, um, but you can't, you know, in practice. Like, how does how does Circle become a bank, right? How do, right. How do you know how do we help them do those kind of things? And that may be because somebody has made up their mind, and I don't know who the somebody would be, but you know that this, as a policy matter, needs to fail. That the crypto experiment in the United States needs to push everything offshore. And so, you know, I heard, I think this may be Matt Levine had said this, and I, again, I apologies if I'm misquoting someone else, but they said, you know, what would, what would it be if you asked regulators in 2010, did they care about online poker sites? And they said, no, no, that should all go offshore. Well, you ask regulators in 2023, do you care about crypto? No, that should all go offshore. Maybe it's the same kind of vibe, you know, that we're feeling right now. And it gets lost yeah. in a lot of different regulatory pathways. But I do think that there has been, you know, and this probably, again, you know, tinfoil hat time, goes back to FTX. And it goes back to the staking question. It goes back to the, you know, the, the BlockFi, Doquan, and Terra. You know, all the things that happened last year are really informing people's judgment about how to react this year. Yeah, that's an that's an excellent point. I mean, I I think, and we're seeing. I mean, we saw Gary Gensler as well. He chimed in, right, saying that the SEC was going to investigate um, any wrongdoing, if any, associated with these um, with these banks. Uh, and it's been predicted that Gary Gensler has his eye eventually on being Treasury Secretary, right? So, um, I I think. This is a really key political time, um, as you as you noted for for crypto. Although I don't think that crypto is to blame here. No, um, no, I don't know at all. You know? I, mean, I think we are just seeing the fallout of, and you know, SVB is not a crypto bank, right? Right. You know, it's a startup bank, and it did a lot of things with startups, and some of those startups happen to have digital assets or fintech in their you know portfolio of things that they do. Um, I think Signature and Silvergate were more expressly crypto banks, right? Because they had the payment settlement systems. Mm -hmm. um, 
but they were much smaller. And so, you know, I don't think this is, I don't think it's the case that, you know, they were let go or pushed in the wrong direction. I just think that you might have taken a different view. You know, we look at historical banking crises. You talk about what happened with the SNLs in the 80s or in the Texas oil patch in like in 1983. Um, you know, there's lots of other examples in history of a concentrated industry, you know, where lots of people were focused on the same kind of thing, you know, causing small bank failures because those banks spring up to really service those clients. And then when those clients get into trouble or when markets turn and there isn't as much, you know, value in the system, you know, there's not no longer a low rate environment, you know, banks fail. Um, yeah. But I guess the question is, you know, are they going to allow, um, you know, new entrants into the market to take the place of those guys? I mean, it's a great question. And I think what we have to bear in mind too is most startups fail, yep. right? Most startups fail. So, I mean, to the extent that we want to have a an environment that is conducive to encouraging innovation and startups, I mean, holding aside crypto altogether, right? Just, just in general um, with, with tech and other types of startups, um, you know, we have to have players who are, are willing to, to take the bets and to finance these um, these companies early. Now, what's been, I, I read it somewhere, but someone was suggesting that an alternate path to having the banks backstop <clears throat> the um, the VCs and the the startups and the other depositors um, this at this weekend's <laughs> banks um, would have been for those companies to issue new equity. Right. Um, and but that that would have diluted founders and and things like that. Um, another another thing that was floated, and I think this leads us actually back into stable coins a little bit. Some people are saying, you know, SBB could have just created a it could have tokenized its holdings and created a stable coin equal to the value of its holdings, which I mean, clearly that didn't happen. But um, but it does bring us back a little bit to to Circle and USDC, which I mean is often widely regarded as you know a not that I I I don't know like a premier if there is one or more stablecoin in terms of one to one fiat backing and and in terms of of verified reserves well um, in compliance with New York. You said, you said the important word there, which is verified. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, it, it contrasts to other options in the market because I think Circle went really above and beyond what may have been required to provide transparency into its holdings. And when it found out that it was, you know, when it found out what was going on at SVB, it did the right thing and made a press release and said, you know, 3.3 billion is locked up at SVB. We're working with the regulators to figure that out. Unfortunately, you know, the market took that to mean circles failing. <laughs> and of course, they broke the peg and, you know, got fairly low, you know, below their one to one peg, at least for a particular, you know, point in time. So, you know, they, it seems to me that, you know, that's actually running against what a regulator would want, right? You want people to comply, you want people to be overly transparent in the stablecoin space. But, you know, uh, Tether was one-to-one -one and has never broken its peg. 
while being, I think, deliberately opaque about, uh, you know, what they hold and what they've been up to and to the point where they got sued by the New York AG and a settlement with her. Um, so, you know, again, it's, it's kind of a question of like, you know, what, what do they, what do they really want? And if you take the view that they just don't want any crypto in the United States anymore, then, you know, seeing a company like Circle, which I think does everything right from what I can tell just from reading, you know, having them put under this tremendous pressure due to where they bank is is really a weird outcome. I agree. I mean, who would have thought that that holding their their reserves in a bank would would cause to would cause such challenges? Um, I agree with you. I think their disclosure, in my view, um, it was was excellent this weekend. I mean, there was that release that you mentioned, which was shared by Dante Desparte and. Um, Jeremy Allaire, and then BlackRock had a similar um, related disclosure as well. I thought those were incredibly helpful. They talked about where where the reserves were held, what steps were being taken. You know, what I do think is um, is interesting, and I saw this talked about in an article um, in Fortune today. And it's called the collapse of crypto bank signature and Silvergate could mean a liquidity crisis for stable coins. And what it's talking about is, among other things, that, as it says, crypto may be a 24-7, 365 ecosystem, but traditional banking is not. And then it's talking about how with the, you know, the events involving um, SBB and Silvergate, that actually the on-ramps and off-ramps for, for USDC, the fiat on-ramps and off-ramps, are not going to necessarily be available right now for 24 hour trading, right? Um, yep. That it really, while they've found a solution, um, at least for the time being, it's really a business hours solution. And business hours, you know, especially in the digital assets market, and we've seen this across the board, um, including with respect to del- derivatives and other things, it, the, having trading platforms around the world operating at all hours. I mean, the business day concept was almost gone with the wind. Yeah, I mean, again, I agree with all that. And if you go back to the the macro narrative of things that happened in 2022 had a real, made a serious impression on regulators. And to the extent that people feel like crypto is no longer a thing that should exist in the United States, there are levers to pull. And there are outcomes to help shape that will lead us in that direction. You know, again, without any getting into any more specific, I have no particular knowledge of that. But just if you're you're standing on the sidelines observing, you might say, seems like they actually are pretty happy if this all moves to Europe, Asia, South America, what have you. I mean, certainly it seems that way, um, at least for a lot of voices. Um, I think we'll need a little bit more time certainly this week to see, you know, just what shakes out. I mean, certainly we saw this weekend um, and yesterday reports that can't remember the name of the bank at the moment, but it's a regional bank and it's at shares at one point were, were trading, I think 60% down despite having received, you know, an infusion, like a line of credit um, from, I believe, JP Morgan, as well as backstop facility. From yeah. A, I think you're thinking about First Republic, but there's yes, exactly. You know, there's 
Zions out in Utah. There, there's a handful of others that were mentioned in Bloomberg and other places yesterday because they are, you know, sort of mid-cap, mid-balance, you know, mid-sized balance sheet banks um, who, you know, really fill a vital role in the economy of the United States. And I guess the point I would make about that is going back to my my days as a securitization lawyer and thinking about mortgages, the global banks, the huge banks have withdrawn from the U.S. mortgage market. And, you know, you can question why that is, but, um, you know, your Wells Fargo's and, uh, you know, Bank of America are pulling back from making residential home loans. The, a lot of times it's banks like the, you know, the kind of mid-sized banks that are stepping in to fill that gap. So, you know, this has a real profound impact on the U.S. economy because they make loans to homeowners and loans to small businesses. And if banks like this go away, this is a real problem, I think, for the United States banking system because the big guys are not interested in that kind of end of the market anymore. And there's no one really obviously stepping in to help out, you know, the, again, startup business, you know, homeowners, things like that in certain regions, certain types of borrowers. So, you know, it's profoundly troubling to think about that size of the market contracting in the way that it has this week. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, it's been talked about as well, just on social media and other places, this idea, you know, are we creating really, truly two types of banks? Maybe some may argue that we already have, right? The, the GSIB banks, so the globally systemically important banks, right, which are too big to fail versus the regional banks and whether they, and, and the, the non-GSIB banks, right? And, and what will become of them? Um, or, you know, if they're not too big to fail, you know, are we, I mean, hopefully knock on wood, no one fails, right? Um, that's certainly not what we want, but a rumor was going around as well. Um, and David Marcus tweeted about it uh, this weekend on March 11th at 1.27 p.m. He said, hearing rumors that the FDIC is blocking GSIBs from buying SVB on the grounds that it would create too much concentration within our with our largest banks. So I, I think, you know, it is, um, without commenting on whether that rumor is accurate or not, I do think this, this division between banks and, and additionally trying to keep the the crypto touching banks out of, to the extent possible, the GSIBs appears like it may be um, the intent of, of certain legislators, regulators. Um, certainly we've seen certain legislators write letters and ha have other communications um, that are not exactly uh, happy about the idea of banks holding crypto. Um, I do think, you know, just a few other things, and this goes back to your idea, um, not idea, but really I think your correct assertion about the events of last year really, um, really continuing to, to shape people's views. You know, the New York AG, this is getting lost, I think, a bit given everything um, that's happened over this past weekend. But, you know, the New York Attorney General brought that case, I believe last week, was it? Or, or the week prior against KuCoin, right? This was big news at the time because among other things, um, in addition to say calling Luna a security and, and certain other, other digital assets, they referred to ETH as, as being a security. Um, and so some have said, look, while the SEC has been going back and forth um, about whether, whether 
either maybe a security, and people have been wondering about this. Look, the New York Attorney General, Letitia James, jumped in um, with this suit against KuCoin, alleging um, that ETH is a security. And some are saying, well, is, is KuCoin going to even respond? Could this be a default judgment? I, I believe that's what happened in a case against them out of Canada. Um, but, but again, these types of cases and, and the drawing in of ETH, what do you think about that? Well, I mean, we've, we've always heard rumblings, and I think there are definitely people who are kind of, you know, thinking about these issues even back as early as, you know, the initial coin offering for ETH, right? You know, if you think about what ETH does, it doesn't really have a lot of similarities with Bitcoin. And so if you go to the Gensler school of everything but Bitcoin is a security, I think people have been making arguments, even people, you know, people who you and I work with who are very, you know, kind of steeped in the lore of, of the you know, Ethereum Foundation and, you know, how it got off the ground. Mm -hmm. um, there was some noise around the merge when Ethereum switched from, you know, from proof of work to proof of stake that rekindled those arguments, I think. And the idea that holders stake their coins, that, that's that passive income earning piece that we might actually hang our hat on and say, well, actually, now this is a security. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's some, I think there were some, you know, people who believe, well, it's been around long enough and you haven't done anything about it. So why are you doing it now? Like is that, and, you know, sort of grandfathered in. I'm not sure that the SEC takes that view though. And it doesn't seem like the state regulators do either. Oh, I, I totally, I totally agree with you. I mean, I would say without taking a view on, you know, what I might personally think about, about um, ETH, I would say, you know, we're often asked if something is not a security, can it quote, flip back to being a security? Well, I would say if you have a new investment contract or if you have a material change that, you know, makes a digital asset begin to look like a um Another type of security, whether an investment contract or some other type, like a bond or or stock, you know, that maybe, maybe yes. <laughs> Although I don't think it's just flipping back on the whim. I think you need a material change. So I think that's why some people um, talk about the merge. And I will say, like what we covered in a prior podcast about you know the different types of staking, I think that's still something we we should emphasize that just because something's proof of stake that that doesn't it doesn't equate, at least in my mind, um, to something necessarily being a security, right? There are the different types of, of staking to think about as well. And of course, everything's facts and circumstances, like we always say. I think just heading back for, for another moment to the circle and USDC, the peg, you know, it does occur to me, like, yes, it was trading, it's been trading, you know, below its peg. Is it really truly a DPEG if the losses aren't realized? Meaning, like if the money's always there and it's it's available, then it seems to me that the market amounts they're reflecting, you know, to use a, a common phrase, a crisis of confidence, right? But it's not DPEGing in the same way that we might think about, say, Terra Luna. Right where that truly was like a race to the bottom, um, a death spiral. Like there, 
for USDC, the money was always there. Does that make a difference in your mind, Jonathan? Well, I mean, I, I, I think the fact that they've done so much to prove that the money was there means that, you know, to the extent, and I don't own any stable coins, but to the extent I were to purchase some, I think, you know, that would give me a lot of confidence in buying that kind of stable coin. Um, I don't think, I think that, you know, again, you're right. The peg was just a blip. It's like some of these banks having 80% declines in their share price. They're going to rebound. They're not filing for bankruptcy. You know, it's just the market's kind of pounding on assets that seem to be related to the eye of this particular storm. And I think the USDC situation really argues for why more transparency is better because you can weather these types of things. Like people don't have to wonder, is the money there? We know the money's there. It may be that you may have limited access to it for a certain point in time. And yeah, I think the terms and conditions for these things will tell you, you know, you don't always have immediate access to redemption. But again, it's all, like you said, Josh, it's mostly how do people, how do people feel about it on any given day? Right, it, it, it's, it's a crisis of confidence and that was not a good look for anybody. Yeah, it does make me think as well. I mean, you know, we've been talking in the past about how, you know, at least in some of our views, the, the federal legis legislation most likely to be passed would be a federal stablecoin legislation. And I think certainly I've always thought that, you know, it may look very similar to what New York has in place, what New York DFS passed, you know, in terms of like reserve requirements, reporting, disclosure, et cetera. You know, this, the events with Circle and, you know, which again, like I think that they handled it as well as they could have, at least based on the disclosures that I've seen. And of course, let me just say, nothing that we're saying is legal advice, investment advice, or anything but our personal views. I know we say that in the intro, but I think, you know, we're treading on a lot of areas and it, it bears repeating. Um, but, but I do think, you know, it does make me wonder about what, do, what would this mean? What could this mean for federal stablecoin legislation? Like, I wonder what the regulators and the legislators have been thinking about the circle situation. Do they see it as a success? You know, do they see this as, okay, they've been complying with the requirements of New York um, and, and this is what we would like to see? Or will this have an effect on, on what kind of legislation we see? Because it's, it's really interesting. I mean, one of the safest things, and you alluded to this, I believe, when you were talking about, you know, Tether being rather opaque in terms of its holdings. You know, what could be more transparent in some sense than having, you know, bank accounts full of, of dollars to backstop USDC, for example. And yet, um, as, as we've seen, you know, having, having the reserves in a bank didn't necessarily, quote, save the day um, in the way that, that some might have thought. So I do wonder what the impact may be on, on that. We'll say also, like, I think um, and this just popped into my mind, BlockFi, you know, it was reported last week at the beginning of last week, I think Monday of last week, that the 227 million um, held at SVB, that, you know, it was pointed out that that was not subject um, fully, as you might imagine, to FDIC coverage, because of course it exceeded 250,000. You know, 
I, with the ongoing bankruptcies and things like that, I think people really need to think about where these assets are being held. Uh, absolutely. It just is another lesson in the interconnectedness of markets. And, you know, I think there is a lot to, to, to unpack there. I mean, you know, is it a prudent, uh, you know, is it a prudent strategy now for people to set up dozens of different accounts across different banks to avoid the kind of concentration that we saw at SVB, for example? You know, would a stablecoin issuer have to do something like that? Does that, you know, I, I mean, I feel like that creates more points of failure rather than less, but in, in a certain way, you know, you can understand why that might be a useful strategy. So more diversification, but also more operational risk. So not really sure where that leaves us in terms of how one would administer a business, right? You know, even a non-crypto business, just a, you know, a startup type business. I think from experience, I can tell you, you know, people want one bank account in one place, one lender, you know, like they, they love bundled services because it's operationally convenient, uh, especially when you're a startup and you're running on a you know, shoestring budget. So I don't think that'll be, you know, a long-term thing, but maybe for a large stablecoin operator, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah, I think, um... That, that's a great question about diversification and to what extent people have the appetite for it, even if they should have the appetite for it. Or even um, the given... ability, right? I mean, like these days, yeah. where would you go? Um, yeah, so yeah, I don't absolutely. know, Josh, I think, we're, I think we're probably running up on time. So maybe we want to leave it there and pick it up on the next episode. I think that sounds good. Although perhaps we can just say at least a positive. Um, and certainly we don't have a view as to, you know, investments in digital assets but you know given the events of the past weekend bitcoin at the moment is at a nine-month high and so it's very interesting that at this time when there's been so much criticism of crypto crypto lives on all right i like it we'll leave it there <laughs> thanks everyone take care and there you have it our hot takes for today thanks for joining us i'm jonathan ching and I'm Josh Clayman. Join us next time on Crypto Facto with Josh Johnson.